Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I mean, we can crunch numbers all day in our lab, but at the end of the day, like, if it doesn't feel good for the participant or if it makes them hurt or uncomfortable, it's useless, really. So I totally agree. The best way to go about running injuries is to listen to your body. I'm your host, Senior VP and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and returning to the podcast is Michaela Kahn. Ms. Kahn is a PhD candidate in the Motion Analysis and Biofeedback Laboratory and the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia, and the lead author of a paper published in Sports Medicine on the Influence of Running on Lower Limb Cartilage. Michaela, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Senior Vice President and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and rejoining me on the podcast today... Ms. Khan, Michaela, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. No problem. And actually, we had a lot of feedback, very positive, from our first podcast, so much so that there were other questions that came to me, and they said, can we get that running person back on? And I said, we absolutely can. So I understand that you're the only person currently at your university doing running gait analysis. Can you talk a bit about running gait analysis and, and why you do it and how you do it? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm at the University of British Columbia in Canada. So my supervisor, Dr. Michael Hunt and I, uh, we are doing gait analysis in our lab. And there's many different ways to do gait analysis. Um, And probably I should define what gait analysis is. So it's basically assessing the way the body moves as you run or you walk. For us, it's mostly running. And yeah, I mentioned there's many ways to do it. So from the simplest, it's just using your eyes (laughs) to watch people. Um, Second, you could use something like video and maybe slow it down, look in slow motion, Um, all the way up to what we do in our lab. And that is like a full instrumented gait analysis. So using motion capture cameras and force plates embedded into the ground and the treadmill as well. Um, as, As an osteopath, one of the things that we also were trained in, you know, doing our osteopathic blood therapy is to sort of watch someone walk back and forth and, and look for, you know, asymmetry and things like that. I also understand that you mainly work with master's runners uh, and clinical populations. Can you talk a bit about specifically the challenges in that group and the things that you deal with on a day in and day out basis? For sure. Uh, First, I'll say that master's runners are absolutely wonderful to work with. I've learned so, so much um, from all our runners that come through the door, whether they're, you know, 40 years old, running 10K a week, running 100K a week. My oldest participant's been 81, still running 25K a week. Um, I think the the biggest challenge they face is that master's runners are just not represented in the research world at all. So everything we know about running is mostly you know, looked males in their 20s and 30s. And so that's not directly translatable to this population. Right. And and I also assume that there's a certain amount of adapting to age as far as soft tissue and joints and bones um, that runners who are older, and and I'm starting to use the word older because uh, just a week ago we had an anti-ageist activist on and, and she helped me with terms. So olders and youngers is kind of how the terminology, um, I, she actually came up with that term because she was sick of writing the elderly. So she just came up with older. So I, I'm, I, I assume that, uh, you know, and I know this for myself, that as we sort of age, we have to adapt and, and our soft tissues and joints and bones do. Can you sort of talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, for sure. So as we age, we might become a little stiffer. Um, our skin might become a little bit more sensitive. So um, wearing different types of clothes might be important. Uh, we may not be able to run as fast as we used to. Uh, your strength starts to decrease. And then uh, for females, especially, maybe some changes in bone density as well, especially postmenopause. Right. And, and so the other thing I think that a lot of folks want to know is um, how do you sort of the keys to, and these can be overarching keys to maintaining sort of healthy knees and hips. And, and I'm also assuming feet because I know for myself, I'm a person, you know, with pes, uh, pes planus. So, you know, I've got to sort of watch what I do with my feet when I'm running. So if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, keep moving. <laughs> the best thing you could possibly do. Um, it, it really is like a use it or lose it game as we age. Um, so yeah, my best advice is keep doing what you love doing for as long as you possibly can. Right. And and I also know the other thing that I've had trouble clinically is sometimes when you have these people who are very, very passionate about running is getting them to stop a little bit for an injury. Um, so one of the things about recovery for injury and illness, uh, do you recommend different type of exercises or, or even, you know, aerobic conditioning to help folks sort of bridge that gap where they need to give a certain part of their body a break? Yeah, um, that's a good question. There's actually a lot that we can do. I mean, as a running researcher, it's I'm not a clinician, so this is mainly coming from a biomechanics perspective, but I want to keep people, yeah, running for as long as they possibly can. And there are very few times where I tell people to like stop running altogether. Um, mm -hmm. because as a biomechanist, we can sort of play with the forces a little bit. So if somebody's having knee issues, I might want to change the load from the knee. Um, but of course, it's very difficult to like reduce force altogether. There are certain ways we can do it, but usually the load moves from one area of the body to another. Um, so it's being very careful with these adjustments that we make. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I, and I think that this is important, you know, I've also heard this through all the different sports, um, you know, rotations I took as a resident, even in practice is, you know, take the proper time to stretching. I, I heard you say that, you know, as we age, or maybe if we've taken a layoff, things are going to tighten up. And so, and as the weather gets cooler here in the Northern Hemisphere, I think it's probably an important idea to maybe redouble efforts in stretching and, and things such as that. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I hear from a lot of my research participants that keeping up with their yoga or Pilates practices really helps them. Um, in terms of like, the research on stretching and running injuries, there's no great evidence that like stretching before and after uh, prevents running injuries. But if you love to do it and it makes you feel good, I don't see why not. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that. And then some of us who are, you know, naturally don't stretch a lot, we're like, see, we told you. And I think, um, I think as a clinician and you, of course, you're, you know, a biomechanism, you can tell me patients should really listen to their body. And, you know, I always told patients, if it hurts, you know, you need to pay attention to that. Um, I don't know how you feel about that or not. Yeah, I mean, we can crunch numbers all day in our lab, but at the end of the day, like, if it doesn't feel good for the participant or if it makes them hurt or uncomfortable, it's useless, really. So I totally agree. The best way to go about running injuries is to listen to your body. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the questions that everyone else that I work with is fired off here. So... Um, and I, I, the people who ask these questions will know who they are, so I won't identify them by name. But so uh, somebody asked about the longevity of trail runners versus, say, road runners. Um, and, uh, you know, from your background, you know, in biomechanics, 
How would you talk about that? That's a really interesting question and actually something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, living in Vancouver, we have so many trail runners and people really love to be outdoors in that way. Um, the unfortunate thing, actually very similar to master's runners, is there is not a lot of research on trail running. <laughs> um, so there's actually no research on the longevity now, I will say anecdotally that um, the population I work with, so older runners uh, with knee osteoarthritis, a lot of them have told me that they prefer to run on trails. They like the softer surfaces. Um, now, there was a study by a Canadian researcher who now is at uh, University of Memphis, Tennessee, and they looked at uh, the biomechanics of people running over different surfaces. And they actually found that there's not really any difference between, I think they did like grass and track, concrete, treadmill. They didn't find any differences. Um, but again, it's like biomechanics and what you feel subjectively doesn't always go together. So if you like to run on trails, go for it. Right. And I recently read um, Dr. Peter Atia's book, um, uh, Outlive. And one of the things that he's talking about and other people um, are sort of rucking, which you know, to, for those who don't know the term, it's basically doing hiking with a backpack with a certain amount of weight in it, um, which some of us did as Boy Scouts and some folks <laughs> or the military probably have done. Um, there are some benefits to that as well, from what I've read, um, balance and maybe helping with stabilization mu muscles. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think even just the strength gains you would get from the added weight. Um, for all my runners, I advocate strength training to go along with their program. There's yeah nothing wrong with it, and it can do much more good than harm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think some of the uh, unbalanced surfaces too tend to, in, you know, from personal experience and other, I think that engages a different part of balance, which I think we need to work on. You know, particularly the masters runners and so forth. If you you know run on a perfectly flat, smooth surface forever, if you encounter even a step, it's going to be like, oh, that's that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I know. Just to add to that, there is one study that I can recall that trail runners may get less injured than ro road runners. Um, but that is, of course, multifactorial. Is it because they're going slower or they're yeah watching where they step a little bit more than road runners? Um, but it is very interesting. Right. Or perhaps strengthening some of their stabilizing muscles uh, and giving themselves a little bit more if they step on an even surface or so forth. Yeah. For sure. So here's another question. Cross training, any benefits specific for biking or swimming or what would you advise to some of your master's levels or any level runners as far as cross training? We already mentioned strength, but other um, cardiovascular training. Um, in terms of like preventing injuries or just for performance? Performance, preventing injuries. What, what benefits do you think cross training could give the running uh, any variation is good. So yeah, working on all muscles across a joint. Um, running is great for a lot of things. But for instance, um, people think that it is osteogenic or it builds bone. It isn't the best at doing that. There are definitely other sports like um, like jumping sports, like volleyball or basketball or anything that you're kind of hopping that is better at building bone. Um, there are slight adaptations, like, but I think after 10 minutes of running, like the osteogenic effects go away. Um, so other cross-training, like skipping, doing those sort of things, I'm always going to be an advocate for. Right. And I also think some of the transitional sports, you know, where you're 
you know, tennis, for instance, or, or, you know, even basketball where you're changing direction a lot and putting different stresses on the bone may, would intuitively make me think, and I don't know what you know about the literature. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Definitely those sorts of sports. And then say if you have like a really high mileage week as you're running um, and you want to rest your joints a little bit from that impact, impact is not necessarily bad, but sometimes, yeah, it is too much uh, to tolerate physiologically. So getting in the pool or getting on the bike can be used for that too. So yeah, I think cross training is great. Uh, and here's one that, that that's kind of personal to me. And, and we've talked about this before that you know, I've had both of my knees replaced and, you know, orthopedist is like, yeah, no running. He goes, were you running before the surgeries? And I said, not much. And I go, I'm doing a lot of walking and, you know, just not to, to sort of brag, but the speed at which I'm walking has really, you know, really improved. Amazing. Yeah. To the point uh, where, you know, my, my uh, wife and I are around 16, 16 and a half minute miles walking. And so that brought up the question um, from other folks. So slower running, because I know there's some runners that go at that pace versus folks who walk at that pace. Are there any difference in the health benefits or or the mechanical wear and tear, or is it just variations on a theme? I think variations on a theme. I love to hear that you're walking. That's at a great pace. And yeah, it's a really good job. Um, I was at a conference in Japan this summer, and there was a whole segment on what they call low running. And I see low running all the time, but I didn't really have a name for it. But it's almost like the shuffling type of run. So you're staying low to the ground. You're not um, like moving your center of mass up and down, up and down. Um, And they mentioned that, yeah, it's really popular in older runners and getting people to do that versus nothing or maybe even slower walking is way more beneficial. And I wonder if that's sort of, you know, an intuitive adaptation because I have some neighbors who are are quite a bit older than I am who have their own joints still and who probably ran for years. And when I see them running now, I'm like, you know, they're still going through the motions, but it's a little slower. Um, But it appears that they're getting the same health benefits out of it. So it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So now we're going to get to the part where, and I don't know if it's, if it's proper or if it's okay to call you a sneakerhead. Or if you, or if you just you can call me that yeah. sneakerhead because we've had a couple other sneakerheads write some questions in and I think that you know I think we may have touched on some of these in in the first episode but it's always good to repeat things so you know the biggest rage recently was sort of zero drop shoes you know for sort of new hikers or runners thoughts on that. So zero drop can be completely fine if you are adapted to it. Um, So there's no perfect running shoe. I always say there may be a perfect running shoe for the individual, but across the board, there's no like great running shoe that everyone should buy. Um, So shoes to me are kind of like a medical device in a sense, because they do change the way we move. Um, So people in very minimal, so not a lot of cushioning, very flexible, lightweight shoe, um, they may have a tendency to run on their forefeet. Um, And that takes load away from the knee joint, but places it on the Achilles tendon and the calf muscles. So for somebody with a knee joint injury, I may want to think about, yeah, changing that load. Um, Now, I would never prescribe that transition without a strength training program to help the Achilles and the calf muscle. So same for uh, like a zero drop shoe. You don't have any heel lift in it. So that's going to place a lot more stress um, on the Achilles and the calf. So 
make sure if you're going towards that shoe to be very, very gradual and also to do your calf raises, to do your like foot strengthening exercises. Don't just wake up one day and put on a zero drop shoe. Right. And say, hey, that's not going to (laughs) work. Today's the day we're going to do this. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But there is nothing wrong with it. And I'm always going to be an advocate for more minimal shoes if you can to like walk around. Maybe you don't have to like run in minimal shoes, but having strong, healthy feet is always going to be a good thing. It's the only part of your body in contact with the ground. And and so recently I I was just noticing, um, and I won't call it a specific brand, but um, it's a four letter word. Um, It rhymes with with hookah. And those shoes look enormously cushioned. Is it is it the perception from people that they're wearing like clouds on their feet or, or what's the reason for shoes with that much cushioning? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually had a participant in this morning that has knee pain and she was like, I'm going to try Hoka's because I heard they like cushion the knee. I'm like, actually, research shows that um, like a big maximalist shoe may put more force on the knee. Again, not always related to pain, but um, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. But I can see intuitively why people expect like more cushioning equals less force. Um, But what sometimes ends up happening is you can't feel the floor as you're running. So you end up hitting the ground harder. Now, not everyone. Some people do very, very well in shoes like Hoka's or any other maximal shoes. And they do surprise me. They are very lightweight. Um, so it's not like dead weight you're carrying around on your feet. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's all individual. Right. And, and which brings you to sort of the other thing where, you know, people who do hiking, you know, wear Merrells or other, you know, heavy boots that have leather in them. And you're just sort of like, geez, why am I so tired when I'm hiking? You know, but I can run a couple of miles. So weight does matter when you're looking at a, at a running shoe, correct? Absolutely. I always say like, if you want to increase your performance, if you want to go faster, the first thing you should do is like, well, apart from like other training aspects, obviously, but uh, look at the weight of your shoe, lighter, better. Right. And I recently read, and we may have discussed this on the podcast the other time, but I read that that Nike came out with a shoe that actually sort of pushes back. Um, And there's some people in in the competitive running world that are saying, "Eh, foul, this is not fair. Um, thoughts on, you know, not, the, not thoughts on fair, but thoughts on people maybe looking at this shoe going, oh, I'm going to go faster because it's going to shoot me forward. Yeah, certainly the rise of the super shoes. I mean, we've seen um, the marathon world record fall uh, twice this year, men and women. So that's really interesting. And one was in a uh, new Adidas super shoe that costs, I think, 777 Canadian dollars. So that's a little bit less for maybe like 500. Um, And then one in a Nike prototype that is not yet available. It will be coming out in January 2024. Um, The researchers, we have a couple of theories of why these shoes work. We're not actually completely set on one. Um, Leaning maybe a little bit towards the foam in the shoes uh, it's very lightweight. It's very responsive. So when you compress the shoe, they return a lot more energy when they're relaxed than other foams. So that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is the carbon plate. And then the third aspect is kind of the rocker. So it is, I wouldn't say like propel, not springing you forwards, but I guess propel might be a little bit of a better 
word. Yeah. Certainly not robbing you of the energy that you put in or less robbing you less. Cause I know there's a quotient about how much force is pushed down, how much force you get back. Yeah. 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 And so it's sort of basic tenants. So all of these shoes are really fancy. If you're flipping through the magazines, you're like, ooh, ah. Uh, but as someone who, you know, has pretty wide feet and who has spent, you know, a good portion of my life finally saying, oh, I shouldn't be getting bigger shoes. I should be getting wider shoes, you know, toe box and things like that. Those are finding the one for the size of your foot. Um, thoughts on that? Is that the importance of that when you're running or walking? It is my absolute dream for more footwear companies to offer different widths as well as lengths. <laughs> There's amazingly so few companies that do it. Like New Balance is one of them. And even if they offer it, they're incredibly difficult to get. Um, one of the things I see a lot in Masters Runners would be Bunyans or Halix Valgus. And that yeah, really does affect the propulsion through your foot. So I personally would love to see more shoes with the wider toe box. And it's funny because like my dad called me the other day and he's like, Michaela, why don't they make shoes that actually the soles look like that are the shape of your foot? I'm like, I don't know, dad. <laughs> these are great questions. <laughs> these, are, these are questions to be pondered. Thanks for the, my research, my next research project. Basically, yeah. Um, I'm not sponsored by this company, but the company Ultra, so A-L-T-R-A, they do make running shoes with the wider toe box. So I'm a big advocate of that company. Yeah. And I, I will just, I'll give a quick plug. Um, uh, Under Armour um, has triple E's or quadruple E's. And, and so um, I realized that, you know, my foot wasn't a 12, going to 12 and a half but to, to get comfort. I'm really an 11 and a half, you know, quadruple E. And it's like, Oh, wow. And it's the same thing. And the same thing with golf shoes, New Balance. And I love reading the reviews because I, I always trust patients or, or other people. And they were saying the same thing. When someone says they're a wide shoe, it's like, don't try to tell me you're a wide shoe and, and you're not, and not at least a knee. Stop it with the wide shoeness that way. <laughs> so they're out, they're out there. And I, I would agree with you more that because, it, you know, people with, you know, sort of the prototypical foot you know, there's only a certain percentage of the population that probably has that foot and everyone else is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. So my last question, and, and I, I remembered because you said your master's project was in Achilles tendons ruptures and it's in the news lately, especially with the, the quarterback of the New York Jets, Aaron Rodgers on like the first game of the year blew out his Achilles tendon. Um, so talk about just what your research was a little bit and, and how not as professional athletes, because I don't think any professional athletes listen to the podcast, but <laughs> <Except for> now. <laughs> we, you never know. We, we, we could, somebody could be lurking. Um, but <laughs> talk about sort of the importance of, you know, either stretching or, or strengthening and, and things that we can look out for as we go through our sort of exercise regime with Achilles tendons. For sure. I love to talk about my favorite tendon in the whole body. <laughs> it's good. To, it's nice to have a favorite. It's lovely. Yep. I have a favorite tendon, a favorite muscle. You got it. It keeps it interesting. <laughs> um, so my master's project specifically was looking at the long-term outcomes of Achilles tendon. So our lab, um, gosh, it, probably about 15 years ago now. No, probably more. Um, so in the 2000s, they did a big randomized control trial. So they randomized people to either receive surgery after their Achilles rupture or um, 
what we call accelerated functional rehabilitation. So that's basically just physio. And so it was my job to recall those patients on an average of 15 years after that study um, and basically see how they were doing and see if there were any differences between the people who had surgery and who did not. Um, so the original trial, which lasted two years, they found no differences between the treatments. And lo and behold, 15 years later, also no differences. Um, yeah, really interesting because we we do still hear um, like, oh, surgery is better. It will get you back quicker. Um, but the thing with surgery is it comes with a lot of complications. So obviously they have to put you under their risk of infection, um, all sorts of things that happen. Um, so maybe good news for people who don't want to go through that process. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm not a New York Jets fan. I, I'm a fan of another team that's floundering currently. But I did hear him say that that he was um, a free thinker, um, at least during the pandemic. And so maybe, you know, he's uh, deciding to go your route and do functional rehab. I, it does. I don't think it really matters um, for that team. But um, for the rest of us, I think that the other thing is, is that um, caring for and being cognizant of your Achilles tendon is probably very important when you're working out, correct? Absolutely. Yep. Cough raises everywhere. I tell people to do them whenever they can. Um, I do them at the bus stop. I do them while I'm in the shower. I do them cooking dinner. <laughs> as many as you can get in. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, that is such such an important tendon um, when you're moving. Um, that you can not afford. And the number of times I saw that in the emergency department where a weekend warrior was, you know, going back onto the tennis court and doing some explosive movement and then all of a sudden, bang, they they just fell down because their Achilles tendon ruptured. Absolutely. Well, Michaela, this has been another great talk. um, And I look forward to getting a bunch more questions from people who listen and people I work with. And we'll reach out to you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for everybody for listening in and asking more questions. And I'd be happy to come back. Thank you so much. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Michaela Kahn, and to Sean Mullen, Norm Dion, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.